Good morning. I, I really didn't know that music was going to come on. But you want to know Mission Impossible? Me and QR codes. I mean, I, I actually tried one once. You know, I mean, you could, I went to a restaurant and there was no menu. You had to, a QR code. It didn't work. I, I, I don't know how those things work. These things, these work. They worked on my phone this morning. Okay, you have to show me how. You know, me with a, me with a smartphone is like putting a gold ring in a pig's snout. So. Mission, mission possible. You know, and, and, and I, if you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews 10, 22 to 25, we're beginning a new series and the mission has been spelled out by Christ himself in Matthew 28. I want to read that. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, as a result of that, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, ethnos, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, Paul says something interesting in Second Timothy as we start. 2 2. You have heard me teach these things, uh, think that, that, that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other tr- trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Disciples making disciples. Now, let's go back a second to the first century and visit a group of people who looked at the commission to make disciples, if not impossible, at least improbable. And there were three conditions in their lives that brought this about. Number one, their background, that could be tradition and culture. The teaching that they received and misunderstandings on their part. Now, we'll take a look at what the writer of Hebrews gave as a clear correction to these dear people so that they would be disciples making disciples and see it as mission possible. Now, I write a daily uh, newspaper column for a, for a newspaper in Central America. And uh, I spent, I was talking to Wally a couple of minutes ago, I spent a, a week on, on the, uh, the subject of the dangers of growing old. And, and you know, it, it's interesting. Of all the, the, the columns I've written for that newspaper, this is the one that I think I've got the most comments on, on all of them. Someone picked it up and put it on a, a web page and it went viral. But there was another week I spent on dealing with the lessons. It was called Lessons That We've Learned From the Pandemic. La lección que aprendimos de la pandemia. Now, The first lesson that that came out was we need each other. That's one thing we learned from that. Around the world, churches lost up to 40% of their congregations during the pandemic. Many just closed. When I ask a person, this was in Peru, I ask a person, do you go to church? No, why not? Oh, because uh, our, our church is forbidden right now to gather. Well, what about a live stream? Well, what's that? And then other churches didn't have 
the facilities to do live streaming. You know, we need each other. Andy Stanley, in an interview, said that 40% of his congregation had left. Now, he pastors North Point Church, and all the campuses put together have about 30,000 people. It doesn't take a math wizard to calculate that they lost about 12,000 during the pandemic. And he said, you know, and closer to home, Dr. Sean Nalen here in Portland, which his church was called the fastest growing church in Portland. When I heard him speak, he says he doesn't know what happened to the people. And he's right now he's trying to correct even closer to home. I play golf with a friend about once or twice a year. And we were on the eighth hole about a year ago. And, you know, he said, you know, Jim, I've sort of gotten comfortable watching the live stream from my church. And I really don't think I'm going back. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm going to take my daughter to youth group. But, you know, sitting here in my pajamas... Drinking coffee. I don't think I'm going back. We need each other. The mission of disciples making disciples is possible. In fact, Jesus said, as we've already said, with God, everything is possible. And we don't need Ethan Hunt to accomplish it either. Now, to accomplish this task worldwide, but let's talk about ourselves. We, the church... We need to do four simple but vital things that the writer of Hebrews said to these confused, fearful, and disoriented believers. No one's excluded here, and this is for all of us today. Let me tell you why this is of such vital importance. I I ran across a quote by J.R. Woodward. It's in a book called The Church as Movement. And he says, the cost of non-discipleship is the irrelevancy of the church. If I would have written that, I would have said the cost of non-discipleship is the church becomes irrelevant. So let's read this passage and see if the four things jump out at you as they did to me when I was going over this at three. I know three in the morning is a strange time, but it was. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, to complete the mission that is possible, number one, we need to draw near to God. So, so the, the four, I think that what we need to do is to do a little background on these, these the, the backstory on these Jewish believers. You know, they came to know the Messiah. Up to here, we're good. But to their surprise, Instead of the Christian life being a bed of roses, they doubled their problems. As Jews, they continued to be persecuted by the Romans. Now they're Christians, they're being persecuted by the Jews. We got more problems than we had before. And to the minds of some, as we go through Hebrews, there's the thought, 
God is after me for having left the mothership, which would be the Jewish tradition. It's common, that type of thought. My mother, when she was very sick, she said, what did I do to deserve this? Have you ever said that? What did I do? To deserve this. So these Jewish believers were stepping back. They were leaving grace. They were returning to their old lives due to the trials and the difficulties that they face. So you see in Hebrews the increasing arguments about the superiority of Christ all through that book. Now we get this morning to Hebrews 10. And there's the exhortation to draw near. Now, here's where their background and their teachings and their misunderstandings come into play. Draw near to a Jew. Draw near. Think about it. Draw near. All their lives, they were told to stay away. The Holy Mountain? Don't go near the Holy Mountain. How about the Holy of Holies? One person, the high priest, went in there once a year, and tradition doesn't say it in the Bible. Tradition says they put a rope around his ankle. So if something happened while he was in there, maybe a heart attack, or God zapped him, they could get him out without anyone having to go in. So, the high priest, when he went in, he pushed the curtain aside. When Jesus died, he tore the curtain in two, wide open. And he says, draw near. Must have been a shock. Draw near. we got to stay away. So how do we draw near? Number one, Hebrews 4.16 says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, there we will find mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. So the first way we come is boldly. If we're going to have this mission done, we need to draw near boldly. Second, by the blood of Jesus. As Dick, so I think he's listening to us in England right now. Um, As Dick so clearly explained last week, the wrath of God for sin fell on Jesus and opened the door for us. The guilty conscience is gone. So to accomplish this task, we need to draw near. And what happens when we draw near? Fear leaves us. Third, it says with a sincere heart. This is a true heart. No ulterior motives. It's genuine. And with the full assurance that faith brings. No doubting. No doubting here. James says, but when you ask him, be sure your faith is in God alone. Do not waver. For a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. So, to complete this mission that is possible, we need to, number one, draw near. Number two, Hold unswervingly. The NLT says without wavering. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Another way to say that in the vernacular is hang in there. Hang in there. There are thousands of people worldwide and locally during the pandemic who didn't hang in there. Didn't hang in there. They let go. You see the cat up there. They just let go. And if you're going to, if we're going to complete the mission, 
given by our commander, we need to hang in there. Hold on unswervingly to the hope we profess. You know, I wrote something down here. The validity of our faith is revealed in the time of crisis. The validity of our faith is revealed in the time of crisis. If there weren't a tendency to fall away, there would be no need for the exhortation to hang in there to the hope we profess. Hope! First Corinthians 13, 13. These things, three things will last forever. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love, but, but, but hope is one of them. One of the three. And First Thessalonians 1. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and your enduring hope. I love that. Enduring hope. You have because our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. It gives stability. So what is hope anyway, you know? Psalm 119.81 said, I'm exhausted from waiting for your rescue, but I have put my hope in your word. Hope, I always look at it as sort of the future tense of salvation. It's, it's keeping your eyes, in Hebrews 12 he says that, keeping your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Hope is focusing on the future, while faith and love tend to focus on the presence. Now, biblical hope is not like human hope, where you say, you know, I hope to see you on Thursday, you know, but it's not a sure thing. Hope in the Bible is an absolute surety. It's a sure thing. In the Old Testament, the Jews based their faith and their hope on the Messiah. They hoped for a God to rescue his people from all their enemies and for sure defeat Rome. Jeremiah 17, 17, Lord, don't terrify me. You alone are my hope in the day of disaster. Now, in the Gospels, and also Revelation, in the Gospels, you don't find hope because Jesus was present with his people. And in Revelation, the scene unfolds again in heaven, and Christ is once again with the people. But in the book of Acts, all through the epistles, we find a lot of mention of the idea of hope. Our hope is the assurance of eternal life. Part of Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's eyes by faith, justified by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will never lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with this love. So, this passage says, justification being made right in God's sight gives us hope. Afflictions cannot Destroy this hope. And for this reason, we must rejoice, not get depressed when we go through problems and trials. We hold on to this hope that we professed. And finally, our final hope 
is the second coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, Paul says the Lord himself is the object of a Christian hope. I, Paul, he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus, appointed by mandate of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who gives us hope. Summary. Our hope in Christ is the good hope, the blessed hope, the living hope, the sure and firm hope, and biblical hope stabilizes our life. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 6.19 that says, we have this hope as an anchor of our soul. Firm and secure. Okay, back to the text here. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. God keeps his word. First Thessalonians 5 says, God is faithful to his promise. But what did, I asked myself, what did he promise? I got a couple for you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How about Hebrews 13, 5? I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. This is the ground of our hope and confidence. God is true to his word. He will never fail to keep his promises. He never changes his mind. He promises when he promises something. Okay. To complete the mission that is possible, we need to draw near, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, and number three, we need to consider how we may spur. You know, in the King James, if you look at this passage, it says provoke. <laughs> provoke. One another on toward love and good deeds. So we need to. How'd you like to have those stuck into your side? So the first verse that, that shouted at me when I when I was going over this was Proverbs twenty seven seventeen. As iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. We need each other. We all need encouragement to love and good deeds. But when the going gets tough, remember what the football coach Newt Rockney said? When the going gets tough, the tough get going. You know, it doesn't happen that way. When the going gets tough, we get discouraged. We all need to be spurred. We need each other. Note that the command here is not to love one another and perform good deeds. Although, all through Scripture, we find love one another. But here, it's, it's, here it's to consider how to stimulate, provoke one another to love and good deeds. By the way, just a side note, this is the only place in Hebrews where one another is found. You find the one another is all through Romans, all through the epistles. This is the only place in Hebrews. And then he says, consider. Hmm. That means you have to give this some thought. Or it's not going to happen. To give thought to, it means that we, I, I, to me it meant I need to take the focus off myself and think about other people. What does, what does that person need to help him or her grow in love and good deeds? Stimulate, spur on, or provoke 
it, it, it really is an unusual word here because normally it has a negative connotation, as we find in other parts of the, uh, of the New Testament. But, you know, the author here may be using it ironically to grab attention. Rather than provoking one another anger, let's think about how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And I think this implies that Christian love needs to be worked at also. It's not automatic. So, how do we motivate each other? That's a good question. First, I think we provoke, we spur each other on by praying for each other by name. And we can even pray for each other to develop selfless, agape love and for specific good deeds. If we do this, it's going to happen. Second, I think we need to motivate each other by example. Each one of us should be example to the others. You know, Paul says to Titus, and Titus was not in a good situation. I mean, let's face it. He had to deal with some really difficult people. And Paul says to Titus, and you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. So let's be examples to each other by meeting with people, by inviting people, by sharing the gospel. Third, we can motivate each other through God's word. You know, God's word really is the textbook for love and good deeds. The more we internalize it, allowing God's word to flow through us, the more we'll be conduits to its virtues and examples and we'll be provokers of love and good works. Fourth, another way. We have the responsibility to verbally spur each other on through words of encouragement. It says in verse 25 in our text, encouraging one another, encouraging one another. You know, you and I can change a life with an encouraging word. Lives of spurring on through prayer, example, scripture, and encouragement are gifts we desperately need. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, until I get there, here's what I want you to do. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging, there it is, encouraging the believers and teaching them. So encouraging is right up there with teaching and reading the scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you're already doing. 1 Timothy 5.14. Encourage the disheartened. Why? You know, we have two tendencies. And it says it right there in Hebrews 12.3. What are the two tendencies? Then you won't become weary. That's number one. And number two, give up. That's why. You know, encouraging is not flattery. I, have you been a victim of flattery? I have. You know, you, you know what the Bible says about flattery? In, in 1 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul says, Never once did we try to win you with flattery. And then in Proverbs 29.5, To flatter friends is to lay a trap to their feet. That's what flattery is. Flattery is, is excessive and insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. You know, you can always find it. Jude 1.16. Listen to this. These people, I love this. You know, you ought to read this in the Spanish. It is wonderful. 
These people are grumblers and complainers. In Spanish, it says, they complain, se quejan de todo. Living only to satisfy their desires. They brag loudly about themselves and they flatter others to get what they want. That's flattery. Encouragement is not flattery. So, let's return to the idea of considering our ways. It takes some thought, encouraging people. I was a seminary student and... Uh, I think it was in my second year seminary. And one of my theological professors came up to me and asked me a question. Now, I admit, when I went to seminary, I was intimidated. I'll tell you, you look down that hall, and you know who was there? John MacArthur, surrounded by a group of people. I played a lot of basketball with him. We never lost a game. No matter what the score was. And down this hall, over there, was Josh McDowell. Josh and I had the same classes for three, three years in a row. I was intimidated when I was there. And this theological professor walked up to me and he said, he asked me about a certain passage of scripture and I gave him my interpretation. He said, you know, Jim, you just might be right about that. And he walked off. And I thought, this guy really, I still remember it after all these years, it changed my life. It was a word of encouragement. We can change people's lives by words of encouragement. Now, to complete the mission that is possible, we need to draw near, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, look for ways to spur each other on to love and good deeds, and number four, not give up meeting together. Did you notice what it said there? As some are in the habit of doing. Some people back then were in the habit of not meeting together. Uh, and we've, we've seen the dire statistic. And the Hebrews had the same problem. They wanted to turn back. Can you read that? It says, fully on them. I can do just as I will on my own. And there's, and there's, there's a wolf behind there. Many people are watching me right now in other parts of the world. I know some people are watching in Scotland. You know, uh, you get a pass, uh, and I hope you went to your own church. And I know every time I preach, there's some people in Central America that watch. You know, you get a pass, but I hope you went to your own church today. You're not feeling well today out there. You've got a fever. Stay at home. Don't, don't come. Stay at home. You get a pass. But, you know, church is a place where believers can love one another, can encourage one another, can spur on one another to love and good works. Aren't, aren't they, Gail, aren't they coming up? There, okay. To spur one another on to love and good works. To serve one another. To instruct one another, to honor one another, to be kind and compassionate to one another, and to disciple one another. You know, what happens when we don't attend church? I had a list of 30 consequences that happens when you don't attend church. But you know, I thought, I wouldn't even listen to all of them. I'd probably be thinking about the, the 49er Seahawk game at about a number 13. So... I boil it down to two from the 30. 
What happens? Number one, the world won't know that we're his disciples. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, if you love one another. This isn't going to happen if we don't gather together. The passage in Hebrews does not warn us that when we skip church, we put ourselves at risk. We do. And that was like 16 or 17 of the 30 I had. We do that. But it is warning us that if we skip church, we put other people at risk. The first consequence of skipping gathering together is the sin of failing to love others. Gathering with God's people is not first about being blessed. It's about being a blessing. It's not about getting. It's about giving. If you want a good message, you can always, you know, listen to David Jeremiah. But there's no spurring on to love and good deeds. As we prepare to worship, you know... One of our first considerations should be, how can I stir up someone else to love and good deeds? To do that, we need to know each other. It won't happen in isolation. And if I'm not present, there's going to be a hole. What is that hole? The, a lack of the gift that God has sovereignly given me or you. So we approach Sunday deliberately, eager to be a blessing to others. In those times, you know, when we feel our zeal waning, you know, when we feel the temptation to skip out on church or withdraw altogether, we should consider our God-given responsibility to courage one another and all the more as you see this day coming. Many years ago, I, I, I was an elder and leader in one of the, another church, and um, one of our elders fellow elder with me in the church um his 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 remember his his daughter got sick on a thursday afternoon and that evening she died it was just like that teenage daughter and uh his wife two weeks later resigned from the women's council and then he said i need some time i'm going to take some time from being an elder you know, take about six weeks, and that six weeks turned into two months and three months, and it turned into a year, and it turned into two years. And when he came back, he said, was the worst decision I ever made. It was horrible in isolation. Now, he's fine. He and his wife are fine. They go to a church in Wilsonville. We should. The text is not about us. It's about others. And of course, our commitment to God is far more than a commitment to Sunday morning. It's a commitment to worship with others, to serve them, to pray for them. It's a promise that that that, that we will identify and use our spiritual gifts for the benefit and to serve others and to strengthen them. Are you in? You know, it's it's like. If you choose to accept your mission. You know, every Christian has a commitment to other Christians to love them, to encourage them, and to stir them up 
in his, in zeal until the days of Christ's return. You know, and in the context of provoking to love and good needs takes place as we assemble together, some people have dropped out of church saying that they got their feelings hurt by other believers or now they claim that they can worship better alone. And uh, one lady told me, I went, we went, my wife and I went over to visit her and she said, I have my Bible and my television, that's all I need. Instead of thinking, how can I be used of God to spur others on in love? Now, we might be able to practice certain faith or maybe even certain home hope when you're alone, but you can't encourage others to love and good deeds when you're alone. We can't disciple others when we're alone. We have to gather with the saints to do it. And even in this text, I think there's a feeling that the the times are getting worse when the Lord's return is near. We need each other even more. This is a mission that is possible. It's going to take, number one, drawing near to God. Number two, holding unswervingly to the hope we profess or hanging in there. Number three, Spurring each other on to loving good deeds. And number four, not neglecting gathering ourselves together. This is your mission, if you choose to accept it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these times together. And Lord, we just, we just thank you that we do need each other. We thank you that we have been given different gifts by you to help encourage each other on to love and good deeds. And so, Lord, we just pray. We pray that people would know that we are your disciples because of our love for one another. And, Lord, that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, who died for sins, would go out all over this community through this congregation and other congregations that are worshiping you right now. In Jesus' holy name, amen.